Oh, it's such an honour, Danny. Um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here, and it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work, and you've given it a lot of thought, and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. <laughs> Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about <laughs> and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it, and I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoy listening to the podcast. That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. Today, I welcome Australian writer Elliot Perlman, author of one of my favourite books, Seven Types of Ambiguity, Three Dollars, the Reasons I Won't Be Coming, The Street Sweeper, and Maybe the Horse Will Talk. Elliot is the recipient of the Queensland Premier's Award for Advancing Public Debate and has been described by the Times Literary Supplement as Australia's outstanding social novelist. Elliot has been described as the classic of tomorrow and one of the 50 most important writers in the world. Today we chat about Catfinkel and the Missing Tulips, a novel for children and a sequel to The Adventures of Catfinkel. Welcome back to the Words and Nerds podcast, Elliot Perlman. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me. It's so lovely to have you back. And we were just talking before that you've appeared twice already on the podcast. This is your third time, episodes 59 and 78, and it's always so good to have you back. It's really a pleasure to be back, Danny. Um, you, you, right from the word go, you always make me and I think everyone feel incredibly welcome. Thank you. That's very kind. Today, I'm so excited to be chatting to you about Cat Vinkle and the Missing Tulips, beautifully illustrated by Laura Stitzel once again in its hardback gloriousness. And we were saying before that I loved the book, obviously, but I just love holding it as well, Elliot. Thank you. Well, I'm <laughs> not responsible for how it feels, but um, I agree with you. I, it, is, um, it does feel like a sort of a substantial book that you want to keep with you and um, I hope it makes a lot of people feel happy. Mm, it did. makes me feel happy, but, you know, ultimate book nerd here. But, hey, so for people who haven't gotten their hands on this instalment, because, of course, this is the second book in this series with Kat Vinkel, can you give us an elevator pitch as to what this one is about? Sure. Well, um, it's Kat Vinkel and her trusty friend, Eula, the Dalmatian, uh, back together again. So for those who have no familiarity with Kat Finkel, Kat Finkel is quite a, um, a contented, self-centred, somewhat <laughs> egocentric, fluffy white cat <laughs> who sees the world entirely through the prism of how things work for her, affect her, make her feel, uh, what things, what events are going to require from her and um, in many respects, she's like a little child <laughs> or, um, you know, a, a relative that you might have, <laughs> people that you know, um, you know. And uh, I thought there's, there's a lot of humour to be mined with a character like that. And she's a cat, so she's not meant to get along with a dog, but um, without ruining too much from the first book, uh, she finds herself living and sharing a room with Eula, the loving, trusting Dalmatian, and they become best friends. I love and, this. Uh, then, you know, they have to uh, work out, well, what are we willing to do? Because we live in a world 
where some animals aren't so happy about cats and dogs getting along, living together, going for walks together, having fun. Uh, so, you know, we need to know whenever we meet another cat or another dog, they're the kind of cat that doesn't mind cats and dogs being friends or are they one of those cats or dogs that thinks cats should stick with cats and dogs should stick with dogs? So the message is really obviously um, that you need to be open-minded or you might never meet your best friend. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Thank you. And <laughs> so that's sort of where we are from the first book and the second book, there are two children that love Cat Vinkle and Eula. And uh, in the first book, they, they have adventures in an attempt to help the children. And guess what? In book two, the kids have another problem. <laughs> and the problem is this. Uh, they visit their aunt. I, I should say um, the book, both books, their world is Amsterdam. They live in Amsterdam. Um, there are reasons for that. <laughs> the tulips I, for one. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, my, uh, when, I, when I first went to Amsterdam, and, and we've discussed this before, it just dawned on me, two things dawned on me. Firstly, how incredibly beautiful it is. And secondly, uh, that it looks like the backdrop to a children's story. Mm -hmm. You kind of don't have to invent it. It looks like a magical world where you know, stories are just sort of bursting out of the windows and the flower boxes. And um, uh, so, you know, that's where my imagination started to do its work when I saw an incredibly contented fluffy <laughs> cat sprawled out with the sunlight pouring through the window uh, near a canal. I thought, yeah, that is the most contented living thing I've ever seen. And that's my cat, Vinkle. <laughs> and uh, so we're back in, in Amsterdam for uh, Cat, Vinkle and the Missing Tulips. And their children friends, um, human children, um, come and visit them with a problem. And the problem is they have an aunt they visit because the kids uh, don't actually live in Amsterdam, but they always visit their aunt who does live in Amsterdam. And quite improbably... Um, their aunt, um, who is the grower of some prize-winning tulips, um, she has inherited some sheep from a, a next-door neighbour that um, was given them by a, a relative who lived in the country. And the neighbour moved and decided to bequeath the sheep or gift the sheep to um, the aunt. Now, the aunt sees the tulips have gone missing they seem to be getting destroyed. And although she's never actually seen the sheep eat them, whenever she talks about the missing tulips in front of the sheep, they look sheepish. <laughs> so, so it's a mystery as well, Elliot. Well, so the, the sheep maintain to the children that they didn't do it. And the children don't know what to do. So, of course, they call upon Cat Finkel and Eula to help defend the sheep. And that's really where the story kicks off. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful premise. And I love the way you speak about the Netherlands and Amsterdam. I am biased. A lot of my family still live over there. But, you know, you really bring me back to, you know, like you said, that storybook and that picturesque backdrop and, you know, those fields and fields of tulips, which I'm sure you saw when you were there as well. 
Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, for anyone that sees the book, Laura Stitzel, who um, has illustrated both Kat Finkel books, has so beautifully captured the background of mm-hmm. Amsterdam because, you know, if the animal characters, and I should say there aren't just cats and dogs, there are, um, well, without giving too much away, <laughs> for various reasons, they are forced to take a trip to Russia. So, <laughs> I was going to ask you about Russia. So, so you, you, you also get to see, you, you, you not, they have a Russian wolfhound that is Eula's cousin and she lives in, Am- sorry, he lives in Amsterdam, but um, he, he takes them on a little journey uh, for reasons I won't explain now for, for, <laughs> to save time, but he takes them on a, on a brief excursion to Russia and that's when you meet, you know, um, a wolf, a Russian wolf, <laughs> she-wolf and um, Russian bears and, and Laura has captured the, the backgrounds as the characters are walking somewhere. You get these absolutely gorgeous um, illustrations of, you know, mainly Amsterdam, but a little bit of Russia too. Um, and they're just so sweet and whimsical that, uh, and I, you know, I can say that because I had nothing to do with them except <laughs> knowing that I wanted to work with Laura. Um, they're just enchanting. So really I think that, that That's a good word, Elliot, enchanting. And Laura does such a beautiful job. And I interviewed her last time when we spoke about the first um, book in this series. And that's right, yeah. She's just, yeah, she's lovely and so talented. And it just really suits that, you know, whimsical storybook. Yes, it's, it, it's kind of, in a sense, um, what she's done. Um, and I, I don't know that I even asked her to do this, but perhaps I chose to work with her because her work already exhibited some of these um, traits that it's kind of timeless. You know, some mm-hmm. illustrations look very uh, modern or, you know, I don't know, postmodern or, you know, quite sort of in your face. These, um, they're almost a little bit retro. Yeah, definitely. Really appeals to me. Me too. <laughs> captures the whimsy of the story. Mm. Um, so I, I'm tremendously lucky uh, that I get to work with her and, and that she totally gets it. She just, you know, and you can say things to her like, um, you know, we, we had this conversation uh, with the first book, you know, I think Eula's snout would be a little bit longer. <laughs> you don't mind my saying, but not as long as Lobus the Russian wolfhound. So <laughs> you have three-way conversations with your illustrator and your editor about, you know, what, what does a llama's ears, what, what do llama ears do when they're perplexed? Or something? Very important questions. Now I want to know. <laughs> well, you know, if you, if you want to know, just flick through the book and, and look, there's a character called Roy, Roy Llama mm-hmm. and he is unsurprisingly a llama. And, <laughs> And if you, if you, you know, want to know what he looks like and, and what he, his expressions at various times, then, you know. Look at um, his ears and that yeah. will tell you everything. I love that. Imagine if that happened with humans. You could tell how they're feeling by the shape of their ears. Yes, we probably don't give enough attention to ears really to <laughs> as, as a species. I think you're right. Totally right. <laughs> now, I want to ask you about the change of scenery. Was it just for the Russian bears or had you, had you planned out that your character's going to Russia? How did this happen? Well, well um, it is of the first book. We'll, we'll remember that um, 
Eula, who's a, a terribly trusting Dalmatian, you know, with big black eyes and basically she, she's based on the dog I had. So I had her from about 8 to 13 and, and she had big black eyes and <laughs> she was terribly trusting and frolicky and, um, you know, very open-hearted. And, um, you know, Catfinkle could, if she wanted to, trick her. Probably, <laughs> um, and and so Eula seeks advice from her wiser cousin, Lobus, the brave dog Lobus, who is a Russian wolfhound, and therefore speaks with a Russian accent, and um, you know has friends and family still in Russia. He's a much travelled dog. You know, <laughs> uh, he, he often worldly, very worldly. He talks about <laughs> um, having to be on the back of a flatbed truck with an echidna. <laughs> he had to take an echidna to, um, I think, Yakutsk, where it was freezing and the echidna was just devastated because after all that time on the back of the flatbed truck, the echidna was unable to find any ants because <laughs> the ground was so thick with frozen snow. Um, Did you draw on your background of travelling or backpacking, With, with, echid- with echidnas, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking, lay, you know, laying on a flatbed truck, you know, hanging well, out with cool people. Well, yes, I mean, this this echidna, you know, has has some problems. Um, <laughs> needed counselling, and and I thought Lobus is just the kind of Russian wolfhound to take care of the echidna, and he, he sort of acts like he's, um, you know, he, he's he's been Secretary General of the United Nations of Animals. <laughs> he, he knows, you know, uh, he'll tell you one of his closest friends is a llama. Um, He'll tell you that uh, there are some koalas coming <laughs> in Amsterdam Zoo. He set up a, a meeting with them. You know, he, he's wanting to to meet all sorts of different animals, and he has a lovely attitude, um, which is very embracing of all living things. Uh, he's not suspicious generally, although he does worry, particularly in the first book, that Eula might be taken advantage of by Catfinkel. <laughs> Never. She is a cat, you know. That's and, right. Uh, uh, I'm not saying not all that we want to work to stereotypes here, but no, no. But you know, when, when uh, I have to take care of my cousin and just make sure you're being, you know, properly looked after here by this cat who doesn't seem to want to do any work. Um, <laughs> but so, so um, I thought Lobus being a Russian wolfhound is a good opportunity to take the characters to another country. Grisha and Shivka, they are uh, brother and sister bears and they are musicians, singing and dancing musical bears. They perform their own material and do cover versions of other people and animals' songs. And these two bears were very popular with my sons. <laughs> and, um, so a I trial thought, audience right there. That's right. Yeah, gave me an opportunity to put in some Russian bears and uh, and a, and a, a she wolf. Who wouldn't want a couple of Russian bears and a she wolf? Really, I mean, I feel like they're essential. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> they're some of my favourite characters. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally. I'm there for that. <laughs> now, Elliot, it would not be an Elliot Perlman book without you know. Obviously, there's humour and there's fun, but there is also there are also a couple of deeper messages in there. And I want to see if we can unpack them. The first one, and I was pleasantly surprised to read this, was a bit of scientific references in the book. And 30 says, I love science, which I think is really important. 
Um, what inspired this, Elliot? Well, I should say this is, um, you know, pre-COVID because I, I couldn't possibly write, edit the book and then have it come out with Laura's illustrations now uh, if I didn't write it before COVID. Um, and it was not really, it, it was obviously we're aware pre-COVID there exists a cohort of the population uh, here and overseas that are what now gets called anti-vaxxers. And I find this incredibly frightening. And I wanted to encourage, um, you know, a certain cast of mind that values objective truth and scientific testing and, um, the, you know, as, as you know, Danny, the book also deals with um, how to spot fake news, <laughs> how to test it, um, and, and also trying to stop conspiracy theories from proliferating. My goodness, how relevant is that, Elliot? <laughs> <Right>? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, you might say I got lucky, but I, <laughs> you know, want COVID and, and, and everything that's been going on around the world to... Uh, you know, just to, to prove me right. But, yeah, um, <laughs> in that respect, um, yeah, I mean, already th this kind of cast of mind already existed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the original impetus for Cat Finkel, the first, the first Cat Finkel book was really Trump. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds bizarre, but um, there, there had been, um, you know, not just, because of Trump, but leading up to Trump, uh, not just in the US, but pretty much everywhere, um, a lurch to the extreme right and a growing tolerance of intolerance. Mm -hmm. And I found that, that you know, frightening and it, it made me feel uh, somewhat fearful, angry, impotent, especially after I'd spent you know, five and a half years writing The Street Sweeper, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, an adult book uh, that deals in large part, uh, uh, along with other things, with the civil rights movement in the US and the Holocaust, um, to think that, you know, not long after that book comes out, the world starts heading in even further back in that kind of sour direction. Um, I thought, where, where do you start? Where do you start? You know, what, what can I do? Which is obviously very limited. Um, I thought you, you start with children. You know, I, I can't, uh, there are people with voices that have much bigger, a much bigger reach than mine talking to adults. And, you know, I, I don't think I would get people that, um, believe in conspiracy theories and, and fake news and the kind of people that might be watching Fox News in the US are probably not going to be reading my books. <laughs> but I thought the one thing I can try to do is reach children and help parents at a time when um, they don't want to frighten their children and they still want to entertain their children, but they'd like to be able to discuss these things so that we're building, in a sense, a kind of moral and intellectual resilience in kids to sustain them and prepare them for 
assaults on reason and assaults on humanism. And I thought, let's start doing that. My challenge will be to tell stories that are as funny as I can make them, as entertaining as I can make them, gripping, I hope, and even, uh, if possible, psychologically nuanced. Because as kids get older, and they don't have to be that old, you know, they can be eight and upwards, even, even slightly younger, but they can't necessarily articulate it when they're younger, they get a sense that the world isn't so black and white. It's nuanced. You've got friends at school and you're worried, hmm, how many of them are going to be my friend tomorrow? It's a little bit scary. Um, why did my best friend start talking to another kid? Um, and then, you know, it's even worse if they start picking on you for some reason. It could be any reason, and you know, with kids... Uh, and indeed with adults, it can be a reason that they invent. So they don't merely dislike you because of where you come from or mm. what you look like, but they've suddenly made up a thing that you didn't know, you know, an attribute that they say you have, and then they want to um, discriminate against you by virtue of you possessing this um, imaginary attribute. And and I thought, let's, let's try and prepare kids, make them morally brave to help other kids who are the victims of these things, even if they're not the target, and to help them sort through, you know, uh, a fact from fiction and also fiction or, or things that aren't true that are said with the intention of hurting. And if, if you can prime kids and I, I think it's a little bit like this with adults too and and there have been uh you know fairly famous tests in psychology that says that if if you see somebody in distress and you see a person go up and help them you're more likely statistically to go and help them um you you know i mean we we have in in society a whole distribution of people who will be faster or slower to go and help somebody in distress mm -hmm. um you danny i should say by the way from what i know of you would be one of the people that's first in there to help <laughs> but so if you get 10 out of 10 for helping there'll be someone that gets zero out of 10 and that they're never going to help and then there's someone you know who might get five or six who would like to help, but they didn't recognise the situation or they're not that brave. But when they see even just one other person helping, it encourages them. But somebody has to be that first person to say, you know what, that's not fair or that's not right. And uh, let's set an example. We'll be the ones who say this isn't right. And I think to an extent, and I... I you know, should say I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a or a social worker. I don't have um, training in the area, but I think you can sometimes stop bullying by setting up a a paradigm where you know almost the, it's the silent majority, or maybe not so silent. Um, it's not cool. So people might even be led to behave morally, not even because they're such moral people, but just because they want to fit in. And if the prevailing trend is um, 
you know, uh, we, we don't pick on people. It's not cool. We just don't do it. And, you know, you see certain sporting organisations and, you know, I'm a big AFL fan. I know the AFL takes, takes a very strong position on, on things like racism, which is fantastic. So I think it's, it's possible to, um, you know, to, to encourage that kind of positive behaviour through, through story and, um, and then you can have parents and teachers talking to the kids at various stages in, in you know, in the book, in, in either of the books for that matter, in, in both of them and saying, oh, what would you do in that situation if um, everyone started saying that about, you know, one of your friends or even someone? And, and, and what I did with the sheep is that the sheep are a little bit cheeky and um, they're not even sort of lending themselves to, to, to the help of um, Kat Vinkle and Euler initially because they think they've had it. You know, they think they're in big trouble and so they just decide to be naughty and silly um, and they need to be reminded, hey, don't, don't, don't offend the people that have come here to help you. And that sort of raises the question of, uh, well, should we only, if something unfair is going on, should we only help the victims of the unfairness if we like them? Or do we have a view that if something's unfair, we should do the right thing no matter what? Um, and so, you know, I think you can raise questions which might be even more or nuanced than just what's right and what's wrong, you know? So that's incredibly long-winded. <laughs> I'm trying to incorporate... But an important one. Well, look, it was important to, to me in, in um, you know, what we, we discussed this previously, why would I go from sort of writing uh, books for adults that always deal with um, social issues and... and uh, get also interested in writing books for kids and it's this feeling that um, you want to be able to entertain kids while making these messages um, there for them not hitting them over the head with it but you know it is possible to read the books or have the books read to you and kind of not even discuss this stuff particularly for really young readers um, or, you know, young kids who are not even yet able to read the books themselves. They just enjoy, I hope, the humour and the fun of it, mm -hmm. the and the silliness. But um, for any parents, grandparents, teachers, librarians, aunts and uncles who want to, you know, take a moment to talk about some of the issues and what's fair and what isn't fair, I've, I've tried to set it up for them. And I should say also, for anyone that's interested, um, I guess particularly teachers, I've, as I did with the first book, on the um, Penguin website, there are teachers' resources, which really, I guess, you know, are also resources for parents, um, where not only do we provide a whole lot of comprehension questions, probably more than you... <laughs> more than you want, but just so you get, you know, get a choice for the teacher, but also these thematic discussion questions. So you can have a conversation with, with a class or just with your own children on these themes once they've read the book. 
I love that. And I love the idea of encouraging empathy. And you know what? I love the idea of even doing our little part. I mean, you're doing quite a big part with this book, but just fiercely opposing those ideologies of prejudice and, you know, all those things we're talking about. And I think if everyone does their bit, whatever that is, I think that's really important because you do need to go back and swing it the other way, which you can see with current world events. Hopefully it is, it is coming back to that, but it's always a fight. You know, I think, I don't know. I think sometimes you take it for granted, you know, you think, Oh no, everything's moving forward now and we're being progressive and it's fantastic and we're accepting and of, of all people, but you take it for granted and it can just swing right back to the past, can't it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I actually don't take it for granted. I mm. constantly, um, and, you know, it might be because of my background um, being Jewish and having family that went through the Holocaust, um, your antennae is, are raised sort of, hmm, what's that in the air? You can just mm. hear it. I think I just hoped it would always get better. You know, I mean, my grandparents, they were in, you know, Japanese war camp and they experienced a lot of prejudice and racism when they came to Australia. And I experienced it a little bit in primary school. And so I think I've always had this hope that, no, no, it's just going to keep getting better. It's going to keep getting better. And so I think, although I've, I've experienced similar things, um, I think I just had that sort of naive, I guess, hope or optimism that, no, no, we're going to keep moving forward. But I've come to realise, unfortunately, reality hits you and you think, hmm, can never take this for granted. I've got to always be a really fierce opponent of all these horrible ideologies. Yeah, I think you do. I really think it's like a... Um, Constant battle. Yeah, it's like a, um, a a muscle, you know, kind of uh, use it use it or you lose it. And... Um, you get shocked if you're only talking to people that are like you or like-minded and um, and you think, I, I need to reach out to, to other people. And um, that's what I hope to do with the books. And it's important. It's really important. I love, I love it and I, I love how the book it is. It's so many things. It's lighthearted. It's funny. It you know, takes us into all these different places. But then it's also, if you want to read it that way, it's also got those beautiful, deeper message, messages. So I think it's a really important book. But I wanted to steer the conversation a little bit differently. And I wanted to ask you, last time we spoke about Maybe the Horse Will Talk, an incredible book, which I just, I just love so much. But this is, this is, like, this got some big news here, Elliot. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. Well, um, you know, in this pretty rotten year, um, <laughs> I, I, had, I had some unexpected but very, very positive news where I was um, so picture this situation. I have these two small boys and they're both of kinder age and I was unstrapping my three-year-old from his car seat and had him in my arms when I felt um, a beep, you know, <laughs> from my mobile phone. And uh, I thought, oh, great, I can't get that. You know, I've got my son in the air in my arms and, you know, my other son is sort of trying to hold my hand and how can I hold all this? <laughs> Finally, I got them to kinder and I had my hands free and I could check my phone and the message said... Um, Call me when you get this. Uh, it w- it was from the it was from the president of Paramount Television in the U.S. and she said, "Hi, Elliot, or good morning. Um, call me when you get this. 
we want to buy the horse. And I thought, wow, <laughs> you, don't, you don't get many text messages like that in your life. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how all of these big life-changing messages you get, they're just with domesticity, you know, <laughs> like they're just juxtaposed with the taking the kids to school and doing the normal ordinary things and, oh, someone wants to turn my book into a movie. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so it, what happened was um, I sent it off to um, Paramount in the US in blind hope. I've had some good fortune, but, you know, along the way there are many false starts. And so, for example, my my first um, novel, $3, when it first came out, not long, I mean, I think within a year of it coming out, um, my literary agent said, um, oh, we got a call from Dustin Hoffman's production company they want to know if the rights are available. And uh, I was beside myself with excitement and, I, you know, I didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> and, and, and this is what it means. It means that Dustin Hoffman, at least at that time, had a production company that employed people who employed other people <laughs> who employed other people who employed other people that he'd never met Mm-hmm. ever it was their job to find out which books that had come out that year had been sold to film and television and which hadn't been that's the closest i ever got to working with <laughs> dustin hoffman so it's still closer than the rest of us elliot look i look forward to working with him again <laughs> it was <laughs> but but i mean the point was it, it um it didn't mean anything <laughs> and I didn't know that, you know, uh, 22 years ago. Um, so, but this time it was different. And, and I thought approached by any Australian producers about this, even though the, the novel is Australian, I'm Australian, and although, you know, it could be set in Sydney um, or any Australian city, really. It's a kind of a very urban book. Um, and they, yeah, they, they want to adapt it for a... Um, probably i think 10 part wow tv show tv series for um they they want to move it <clears throat> excuse me um from from melbourne to a us city mm-hmm. and uh everything about it will be american um except me <laughs> they they would like me to adapt it and and executive produce it which is you know terribly exciting and and a little daunting and I should say it happens in stages so you you eventually try and get the pilot written and maybe shot and then you hope that a network wants to buy it so uh, Paramount would then try and sell it to I'm guessing um, either what they call you know premium premium cable like an HBO or something Mm -hmm. or to a streaming service like Netflix or Apple or Amazon uh, because the subject matter really lends itself to the absence of restrictions that you get on an HBO show that you Mm -hmm. wouldn't get on, um, you know, network television because you just can't say and do all the things that my characters say and do. So um, it was really gratifying that they, they saw the humour and the darkness uh, coalescing in this kind of um, cocktail. 
where, where very serious issues are dealt with and everything but the sexual harassment is played for laughs, but the sexual harassment is nothing but dark uh, because obviously there's nothing funny about it. Uh, but it does enable you to talk to people about sexual harassment in the workplace um, because it's not the only thing the book is about. It's a romance. It's also a story of a marriage under stress. It's a buddy picture. It's also a bit of a kind of a thriller in terms of, um, you know, who did what to whom and what's going to what are the consequences going to be of that? They got that. And, and it was pleasing because um, it's not yet out in the US, pleasing that they could see that it an international audience. And what I love about the 10-part series, I mean, I'm sure we all, you know, have, we always say the, I do, we always say the book's better than the movie because trying to get 80,000, 90,000 words into a two-hour, three-hour movie is virtually impossible. And so you lose a lot of depth or you lose a lot of the the content of the book. But I think with a a 10-part series, you really got the opportunity to go deep and wide and get it all in. Do you you agree? I really hope so. That's the Mm. plan. Um, That's what I'm uh, hoping to be able to do, to get all of the flavour. And it was nice that, um, you know, because I've worked in film and television a little bit before in Australia, and um, I'm terribly gratified that um, the, the... the books of mine that were adapted were in fact adapted, but they tended to um, sort of stop being told through my voice. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, any adaptation has to be like yep. that because it's so collaborative. But in this case, the, the person or persons calling the shots um, were, were not me. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, so this gives me the chance. And they said, we want it to be you because we want that voice which sort of switches from the humour to the darkness and can make those points with a you know, heavy um, dollop of cynicism. And <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like you at all, Elliot. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the third adaption from your work. So we've got Seven Types of Ambiguity. Uh, which was turned into um, a series, and then $3 as well, which was a movie. So this will be the third adaption. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So um, that's... I loved $3. I just want to throw it out there. I love that film. I I find it... I love the book too, obviously, but I find it very difficult to then watch the film and enjoy it. I I can probably name only about three films that I thought, yeah, that was a good adaption of the book. But I quite liked $3, not... Not like the book, not you know, not as perfect as the book, but it was still really enjoyable to uh, to watch. Thank it. you. Look, I mean, there's such uh, you know, Rob Connolly, Robert Connolly, the director, is you know just very, very talented, and also very simpatico. He totally got the book. Mm, it seems and, uh, that he did get it. And and I remember having a an early conversation with him and and the producer John Maynard, and you know, John is. Um, I don't know, you know, a few decades older than me and he can, you know, be a little bit scary in his manner. <laughs> and, uh, and I was so delighted that uh, they got the politics of the book mm. and I said that to him and he, he kind of said, oh, it sounded almost threatening but he didn't mean it that way. It was like, oh, we get it all right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was really fired up by the politics mm-hmm. of the book. And the politics of the book, among other things, is essentially saying that, uh, you know, we've become a much less fair society. 
Um, and you know, that, that $3 came out in 1998. So unfortunately, I think it's only got worse. Mm, yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm not sure if I, I've asked you this question, Elliot, but I, I, this is the last question that I ask everyone and I should have checked in episode 78. We're now way into the 200s. Can you believe that? Did you know that? Wow, that's astonishing. <laughs> we, we, I celebrated 200 episodes not that long ago, so... You yeah. really are to be congratulated. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, by the way. Just keep doing them. Well, <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, there's 200. <laughs> I think it happens because you do them really well and authors love being on your show and, <laughs> and people like hearing that. <laughs> well, thank you. You can hear it, that people enjoy talking to you. I think, I think listeners like hearing conversations between people that are intelligent where the people get on. I like it, especially we always do this, Elliot, when we talk, just throw away the questions and we just have a chat and it happens to be recording. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but why do you write? I think we've answered this a little bit. I mean, all the deeper messages and everything, but if we dig a little deeper, why do you write? I mean, you left a, a career as a barrister um, to do this and you've been doing this for so long and you do it so well, you know, I always tell you every time I see you, Seven Types of Ambiguity is still one of my favourite books. <laughs> Are you sick of hearing that yet? <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't think so. <laughs> but um, why, why do you write? Look, I, I think, um, you know, if you want to be really, you know, if I try to be psychoanalytic about it, I think I do it because a um, couple of reasons. Uh, I'm not a religious person, but uh, in difficult times in my life, starting from when I was fairly young, I got such incredible comfort from particularly literature, but you know, other art forms as well. I kind of think um, words on a page are, you know, it, it, the it's one of the best inventions our species has come up with to be able to entertain and move and nourish and uh, make people, give people comfort and also to tell you other people have been in situations like this or at least have just had that thought, that fleeting thought or there's a thought that I've had that I've never been able to articulate, but that's exactly <laughs> what I feel. You've just put it in words and it gave me so much comfort that I thought I really would like to try doing this um, to give my life some sort of meaning. That's not to suggest that people practising law don't have meaning to <laughs> their lives, but... Um, for you, this was for you, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's it's because of the importance of reading to me and stories in in my life, and that it gave me such comfort and entertainment, and uh, you know, a certain confidence to get through the world. You see people looking a certain way um, on television or in certain TV commercials, or there are um, kids at school who conform to some set of arbitrary rules that make them at least for a moment part of a desirable clique or set to be in and when you read you think this is nonsense you know mm -hmm. like uh, i mean uh, like the world is so raw you know you're missing out on so much 
and it, it gives you the confidence to go forth in the world and think I'm armed with, um, with literary history as my, it's, it's a richness we can all have. As long as you know how to read, and you can get access to literature. You never need to feel alone. That's absolutely true. And I still, going back to Seven Types of Ambiguity, it's exactly, you hit it nail on the head when you said, you've always thought these things, but you haven't been able to articulate them in that way. And when I read that probably 15 years ago for the first time now, um, 10, 15 years ago, it's exactly what I thought when I read it. I thought, oh, this is everything that I've thought or I've wanted to explore or that has been in my head and you just seem to articulate it take it out of my brain and put it on the page. And I think that's why that book still resonates. And you know, it's terrifying when you read a book again, when you've loved it so much and you pick it up a decade later because you don't want to not love it anymore because you think, oh, what if I've changed or what if I don't love it anymore? And um, I think last time we spoke very early on, I think this is episode 59, I picked it up and I read it again and I did love it again. So (laughs) I was very happy because I was very scared. (laughs) Thank goodness. I was scared too. (laughs) This was, that was a cliffhanger, was it? <laughs> no, I did. And I just, you know, really, I think in the first page, what hooked me, and I'm going to paraphrase this and say it completely wrong, but I remember he's sitting at the traffic lights and he's thinking about this person that he loves and he just wants her to become an anecdote. And I just thought that is just really powerful. Like it's very simple, but how often have we been there by ourselves thinking about things and wishing we weren't thinking about things. And then in my head, I'm like, but I think if, if you've loved someone, I don't think they ever become an anecdote, even if you want them to. And so I really loved that idea. This hope that you have in moments of tremendous pain. I can't wait till this is a distant mm. memory. I can't wait. It'll never stop hurting, but, but you know, surely it's going to hurt less than it's currently hurting. I have to try and imagine that time. Yes. Uh, that's, that's what I, I have, Simon thinking in in seven times yeah absolutely and I think that period of my life it just really resonated and still does and I think you know I think I like that acceptance of you know the people that I've loved well maybe it's always going to hurt a little bit and maybe I'm always going to love them a little bit and that's okay because you can't just turn on and off these things just because you know circumstances change so I like that idea yeah look I think that's right I mean um and when you accept that I mean, it can feel quite sad if you don't get to articulate that to the person. Uh, But you want to say, look, I know we're living in different places or at different times or, you know, I represent 30-odd years ago some moment in your life, but um, I want you to know that it meant something to me. Mm. Wouldn't it be great if people just said this and weren't so embarrassed and didn't feel so vulnerable about it? Like, wouldn't it be cool if people just said that to each other and then just went about their day? I think we'd be healthier. Well, it's bad enough that you feel <laughs> uh, embarrassed. People feel embarrassed to admit anything, you know, mm. to, to admit mm. emotion. But Absolutely. then have to go back and admit, um, what if you have to admit, I think I did the wrong thing, you mm. know, like, or um, this is the way I saw something. I might have not seen it correctly. And if I didn't see it correctly, then I didn't behave appropriately. And I need you to know that or, you know. Mm. um, But they're the big moments and they're the big moments that change you. You know, I think when I look back at my life, all the big mistakes that I wish I could erase from my life, they're the things that made me a better person, you know, and made me change. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we are the, the sum of all the decisions we've made. Especially and the poor ones, I think. Yeah, well, yes, yeah, um, that's, that's true. And, and the decisions we've made and uh, the things that happened to us, much of which is sort of by chance even, you know. Elliot, it is always, always such a pleasure to chat with you as an author and as a friend. And I think we always get so much out of this hour that we speak to each other and we go on many tangents and we always get really deep. And I love that. So thank you so much for sharing this hour with us, for sharing this book with us and for giving, giving us your time. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. <laughs> really. That's, that's so definitely much- staying in. <laughs> <laughs> So many people get such pleasure and entertainment from your podcast. So thank you for having me on again.